1: Welcome to Murder Mile. Today, I'm standing in Waterloo Station, SW1. One street south of Peggy Richards Fall. A short walk from the happy slapping attack on David Morley. A few feet from the left luggage kiosk where the bloody bloomers of Emily Belby K. lay. And soon, something grim. Coming now to Murder Mile. As one of London's busiest transport hubs, the lost property office at of Waterloo Station is a treasure trove of bafflingly bonkers cast-offs, which make even the cleaners wonder who the hell these weirdos are. Having found enough books to fill a branch of Waterstones enough walking sticks to stabilise 62 wonky centipedes, and enough crinkly paged grumble bags to milk even the saddest kid's love plums dry. And occasionally, they also find a gimp mask, a llama, a breast implant, and far too often, a stool sample. A human one. But many moons ago, They also found something which sparked a nationwide hunt for a killer. It takes a lot to surprise those who work in the lost property office. And although they still diligently catalogue every object they receive to return each missing item to its rightful owner, what they found back in 1935 would lead to one of the strangest criminal investigations in the Met Police's history. My name is Michael, I'm your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 230. Pieces. Usually, at this point in the show, I would introduce you to the victim. With sad music playing, we would hear about their life, their upbringing, their hopes, their struggles and their dreams. Everything from the moment they were born to their last moments alive. But this time, I can't do that. I can't even tell you a few pieces about his life, as that's all that was left of him. Monday, the 25th of February 1935, was bitterly cold, as a Siberian blast had driven London's winter as low as minus 28. But in contrast, with highs of 3 degrees and lows of minus 4, that ice caked day was practically balmy. The day had begun as it always had, as the train an electric locomotive with 26 carriages pulled out of a railway siding at Hounslow in West London at exactly 6:48 a.m. Scrubbed and polished by a team of cleaners, the train ran a regular route between Twickenham and Waterloo, stopping at 22 stations, including Richmond, Mortlake, Barnes, Wandsworth, and Clapham Junction. At 1.24pm, the train departed Twickenham Station, with hardly a handful of passengers in its first-class coaches, some in its second class, and a smattering in the much cheaper third class. By all accounts, the journey was uneventful, and barring a delay owing to ice, it arrived at Waterloo Station, just shy of 2.30pm. With a light dusting of anonymous passengers disembarking from platform 19 on the northwest side, another team of cleaners set about removing any rubbish or lost property from the carriages. A few minutes in, James Albert Eves, one of the cleaners, made his way down the third class carriage carrying a refuse sack. The train was empty except for an unidentified male who was dressed in a black suit and hat, who he believed had boarded for the return leg of the train's journey. James hadn't the time to consider the items he would find, and having spotted a brown paper parcel pushed right back under the seat, with the biggest crime being to delay the train on its predetermined route back to Twickenham. As it pulled out, James carried the large parcel to the lost property office. Handed to the office supervisor, John George Cooper, both men stared with concern at the parcel. At 21 inches long, 9 inches wide and deep, and weighing close to two stone, James would state, I felt the weight was curious, as at the bottom, I felt like there were toes. Having alerted the Metropolitan Police, Chief Inspector Donaldson headed up the investigation, aided by Dr. Davidson of the Police Laboratory and Sir Bernard Spilsbury as the Home Office Pathologist. The brown paper told them nothing. As like the string, it was generic. Unwrapping it, the legs had been swathed in tabloid newspapers. An issue of the Daily Express dated the 21st of September 1934, six months prior. And two sheets of the News of the World dated the 20th of January 1935, one month before. Bloodstains suggested that the dismemberment had occurred two days earlier, and with the legs beginning to putrefy, that death had occurred at least eight days before that. Inside were the severed legs of an adult male, complete with shins, calves, ankles, and feet, but nothing above the knees with the lower legs and feet accounting for twelve percent of body mass, weighing roughly twelve pounds each, it was clear that this was once a man who was five foot eight to five foot ten inches tall. But unable to determine his age, all they knew was that he was somewhere between twenty and fifty years old. It was impossible to identify him, as he had no scars and no tattoos. Examined at Southwark Mortarie, they were able to define his details a little further, but not much. As being a white pale male, given his fair hair and his freckles, it was assumed that he worked outdoors. And having the musculature of a healthy, vigorous male, x rays showed no signs of Harris lines, being the arrest of bone growth in his teens, or any senile changes so it was likely that he was in or near his late 20s. The wounds told them even less about who had dissected them and why. As with the clean cut through the soft tissue of the knee joint, just below the patella, it was carried out with extraordinary precision by a person with anatomical knowledge. But who? And yet one detail would perplex these officers more than most. With the victim's toes bent like clenched fists, as if to make them smaller, given that his legs were also shaved, it was suggested that either this man had been so poor, that for many years he had been forced to wear ill-fitting shoes as hand-me-downs, or that he was masquerading as a woman. Whoever this man was, the police had little to go on, but they were unwilling to give up. Every passenger who could be traced from the train was questioned, but no one saw anyone carrying a large parcel or anything strange. And with the parcel deliberately pushed back under the seat, although it was hidden, why would anyone hide a pair of dismembered legs on board of a train which was heading back to its original location? Had the early morning cleaners at the railway siding missed it by mistake? Or had someone planned to dump them? Examining the generic brown paper, using infrared light and microscopic analysis, Dr. Olaf Bloch of the Ilford Photographic Company was able to spot two very faint numbers. A partially erased five, written in black crayon on the bottom left-hand corner, and a fourteen, written in pencil in the right-hand corner. Across the city and every wider borough, Police questioned every courier, freight company and removals firm, as they were the most likely to mark a parcel with identifying numbers. But it came to nothing. And although this tatty-brown paper had been used several times previously, not a single fingerprint was found. The newspapers were submitted to the same scrutiny as with the top right-hand portion of the front page of the Daily Express having been cut away with a sharp knife and a razor, given that this was where some newspapers tended to write the address of the house where the paperboy should deliver it. Although the police spoke to hundreds of vendors, that cut wasn't unique enough, and the handwriting didn't match. And although they had enlisted, the help of two sculptors from the infamous Madame Tussauds wax museum on Baker Street to make plaster-cast models of those unusual feet. No one could identify them. Every piece of evidence had only led to dead ends and every theory had hit a brick wall. It was suggested that given how cleanly the legs had been dissected, that it could have been a prank by a medical student who'd removed a pair of amputated limbs from the hospital incinerator. But with the feet being unwashed, and the wound devoid of a surgical skin flap, that theory was discounted. Inquiries were made at hospitals, undertakers and mortuaries as to whether any body parts were missing, but this turned up nothing as did the hunt for a butcher or an abattoir worker who could have performed such a skilled dissection, as the knees are particularly hard to disarticulate. But again, this drew a blank. And with the police appealing for any relatives who were missing a loved one to get in touch, a deluge of families gripped with grief from across the country, regardless of whether their husband, brother or son was a 5 foot 9 inch tall, fair-haired male in his late 20s, or not. They swamped the phone lines for weeks. Whether it was a murder or not, they still didn't know. Whether he was still alive, they couldn't tell. And although the police had some evidence who this man may have been, that's all they had. Pieces. Three weeks later, on Tuesday the 19th of March 1935, at about 5.30pm, three boys were playing on the bank of the Hanwell flight of the Grand Union Canal. as a series of seven locks from the Hanwell Asylum to the River Thames at Brentford. Past a choking swathe of factories and under two bridges for the Piccadilly Line Tube and Southern Railways, the Clitheroe Lock was one of the last before the Great West Road. Having had his tea, 14-year-old Ronald Newman, was watching a 70-foot-long cast-iron barge exit the lock. But as the wake disturbed the dark calm of the water, he would state, I saw something bobbing up and down. A little patch of brown as a sack floated on the surface, as underneath a meniscus of mildew, the bulk of its contents dipped. grabbing a stick as Ronald drew it near it was clear that this wasn't a bag of rubbish as the sack was as big as a medium sized dog diamond shaped like a giant stink bug and it weighed at least several kilos heaving with all of their might as the lads wrenched this drenched sack onto the bank hearing a tearing they quickly wrenched to the shore as the old rotten sack split. But as Ronald grabbed it at its sodden base, as his hand slipped inside the sack, it also slid inside a wet, festering ooze, which stunk like rotting meat. Withdrawing his hand, inside he saw a gaping wound of flesh and as it slowly dried, a fever of hungry flies had begun to swarm and feast, at what Ronald described as a man's severed neck. Having alerted a local Bobby, within the hour, the Met Police were on the scene. Untying the string which sealed this Hessian sack shut. Inside lay a man's torso. No forearms, no waist, no legs, and no head. Just a torso. Wearing a tatty brown woolen vest, he hadn't any of the ordinary clothes that a man in this era would wear. No jacket, no shirt, and no tie. Just a vest and with all but the top two buttons missing, and a portion of the lower left corner having been cut away, it was likely that someone had tried to disguise his identity by removing the laundry marks. But this was just a theory. Having been submerged in the fetid water of the canal for at least several weeks, owing to the decomposition, it was impossible to accurately determine when he had died, or even when he had been disposed of. With his breastbone, every rib, and several vertebrae having broken or fractured, with a few ribs poking through the skin like white jagged spears. Although the chest had been completely crushed, this wasn't how he had died as all of his injuries had occurred post-mortem as the cast-iron barges rolled over him. With no hands or head found, the erasing of his identity was paramount for the killers. But with a dissection lacking a surgeon or a butcher's skill, this dismemberment was described as rather crude. Lacking the clean slices of a sharpened blade, it was as if someone had been in haste to dispose of this body as quickly as possible or maybe several men of differing skills had taken it in turns, at a side each. Severed at the elbow, the left arm was cleanly cut through the humerus, the radius and the ulna. and whereas the right had been hacked, as a rough jagged knife had ripped apart the skin and torn at the flesh with the stomach as crudely ripped as if someone had split a bag of rice. Across the top of the hips lay a band of rough tears, where the blade had caught and tugged, as a skin flap hung over the innards like a damp cloth cap. And with the neck being little more than a fleshy stump, severed by blows with a blade and a swung axe, This wasn't the work of a professional anatomist, but a crude killer with a body to disguise and dispose of. And yet, spotting two wounds to his heart, which exactly matched two cuts in his vest, there was no denying he'd been stabbed to death. the Torso told the police these few facts. As a white male with fair hair, pale skin, freckles, and his age initially suspected to be in his 40s and 50s, but later determined by x-rays to be in his late 20s, as a well-built, broad-shouldered male of roughly 5 foot 9 inches in height, it was likely he was a manual worker. Moved to Brentford Mortuary in the grounds of the local gasworks, Sir Bernard Spilsbury determined several key details. One, this man was healthy when he died. Two, his death was unnatural. And three, there was a strong presumption that this torso belonged to the two legs found at Waterloo Station so although submersion in water for several weeks had rendered the time of death impossible, based on the legs, it was likely that he had been murdered on or near the 15th of February and was dismembered on the 23rd. And yet, just like before, another unusual detail would pepper this case as along with his shaved legs and his small feet, which suggested he had been masquerading as a woman. Three four-inch-long dark hairs, possibly made from a woman's real hair wig, was found on his body. But were they a message or a mistake? With this stretch of the canal being so remote, although questioned, there were no witnesses who'd seen anything suspicious, nor heard a sack being dumped in the water. So how did he end up here? The Thames police were requisitioned to drag and drain three miles of the canal, with several hundred yards of it dredged and manually searched, but nothing of significance was found. All barge crews who travelled from Coventry to London were interviewed, as well as the nomads who lived on the bank, and the officials of the Grand Union Canal who supplied the details about the sluice gates and the water flow. But again, it proved fruitless. One theory as to why the torso was found here was owing to its location as 200 yards above the lock sits Bridge 206A, which runs the Piccadilly line between Boston Manor Park and Austerley. And 300 yards below the lock sits Bridge 207A, which runs as Southern railway trains from Hounslow to Waterloo Station. The police mulled over this thought that the torso had been thrown from a train into the canal. And that, maybe, with a severed head and arms, tossed into one of several miles of woods and ditches along the train track. And that, maybe, with too many passengers on board, that the killer hadn't got time to dump the legs before the train reached its final destination at Waterloo Station. This was considered. But although the Twickenham to Waterloo train doesn't pass through Hamslow, and Bridge 207A was downstream of where the body was found. Having checked every ditch, nothing was found. That said, the killers could have changed trains. Or maybe it was just a coincidence. But with so much evidence leading to this neck of the woods, the police truly believed that the murderers were local. But who were they? And where were they? With very little to go on, the police set about tracing the brown woolen vest, hoping that its purchase would lead to the purchaser. Made by Harriet and Coy, at a cost of two shillings and sixpence. Although this mass-produced vest was distributed to thousands of wholesalers in London each year, that specific label was used by one company. A Midlands-based garment maker who also sold it in the north of England and Scotland. Every shop which sold the Protector brand was questioned. From Bishopsgate to Argyll, Cheapside to Glasgow. But with few records kept as to who would purchase this vest, this line of inquiry would stall. As for the sack, with they bearing the name Ogilvy, a flour manufacturer of Montreal in Canada? When examined, the company confirmed that the sack was made in 1929, but was one of thousands sent to the UK. And although missing persons reports were read, for every British county against anyone who matched that description. Every lead was checked and proved to be a dead end. With no fingerprints, no laundry marks, no teeth, no ID and no face. His identity was a mystery. Two of the most promising leads Came in the weeks before the inquest. Continuing to use infrared rays on the brown paper, Dr. Olaf Block had found four words which had been erased Harry, Hanwell, and Ward 14. Interviewing the postal clerk at Hanwell Mental Hospital at the back of the Hanwell flight of the Grand Union Canal. He confirmed that the writing was his, but unable to trace who Harry was amongst those who had stayed at Ward 14. That clue led to nothing. And the final lead occurred on Monday, the 25th of February at 1 pm, 90 minutes before the severed legs were found. At Hounslow Station, Harold Hillier, an attendant at WH Smith's, saw three men in the booking hall and at their feet lay a large brown paper parcel. Only one of those men boarded the 106 train to Waterloo, and although he was described as late twenties, medium-built and fair-haired, we know he wasn't the victim. Departing on time, this train didn't originate in Twickenham, but it did cross the Grand Union Canal at Bridge 207A, just downstream of the Clitheroe Lock, where the torso was found. And although the legs were found on the different train, he could have changed at Clapham Junction, or unable to throw them out of the window, owing to too many passengers on the train. Having arrived at Waterloo Station, he could have hid them on an outbound train. Who these men were, nobody knew. But with Harold's statement backed up by one of his colleagues, Thomas Shea, they confirmed this. That all three men were either Welsh or Irish miners many of whom were employed locally by McAlpine and were working on the local sewage works and road construction. That clue took the police one step closer to the victim's identity. Having questioned Alfred McAlpine, Owner of Macalpon Construction, they went through the payroll and employment records for the workers over the last year. But with no one known to be missing, and many of them paid in cash, officers would state this appeared a most likely clue, but it revealed little hope of success, as the firm's labourers are the Flotsam and Jetsam of Ireland and Wales. They had so many clues, but equally so many dead ends and loose threads. On the 10th of April 1935, an inquest was opened at Southwark Mortuary. But with no suspects, no witnesses, no weapon, no fingerprints, and no crime scene to the murder or the dismemberment, on the 6th of June, an open verdict would remain into an unknown male torso and a severed pair of legs. Chief Inspector Donaldson would state, Every possible inquiry has been made to establish the identity of the victim, but without success. Vigorous but negative effects have also been made to obtain the identity of the person or persons responsible for this offence but having drawn a blank. With that, the case was closed. Who the victim was will never be known, nor the final resting place of his forearms and his head. We don't know his name, his home, or the location of his family. We don't know what he had done, why he was killed, or who by. And denied a proper and dignified burial, All we know of him is all he will ever be. Pieces.
0: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. For full important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.
1: For fuck's sake, that was a mission. That was a bit of a mission to record that. Jesus Christ! Oh, I think I'm having a I'm having a a dyslexic day. My brain is just not functioning today. That was a real bugger to edit. That was. Jesus Christ! Oh, hello everyone oh helicopter bastards flying over as well and coot outside being a real pain in the ass and you look out and look at coot and he's there and he's going nah 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 and you look around and you just go well there's no one around you you little shit there's no there's no other coots around you there's no more hens there's no swans there's you haven't got any babies near you, you just you just bored little pathetic little coot having a little rant because he's got nothing better to do he needs to get a job he really does bloody coot um shall i have a cup of tea i think so i'm going to have a cup of tea bear with bear with i'm just going to open the, a window as well and get some air in because it's bl- oh, 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 almost almost, tri- almost tripped over your little hat there i'm going to put you, your hat in your little box so i don't trip over it again because i will bloody will oh do i want a tea i don't know i don't know whether i do i need a piss I don't think I'm going to have a piss while I'm recording um, this. So I'll just have a... Pop the water in. Here we go. Light. What else have we got? I'm going to have a herbal tea. I think I need a herbal tea to chill myself out of it. Oh. It's weird when you're reading... When I'm reading through the script, it all kind of it all feels fine, I do my uh, kind of, uh, I check everything before it goes out, and I go, yeah, that's fine, and then uh, when I come to read it properly for this, everything goes to shit, I can't pronounce simple bloody words, it's a nice day outside as well, I really want to be outside, I could do with that, anyway, it's a Saturday, it's a Saturday, which means I'm going to treat myself to something nice today, it's treat day, diet is still going well, uh, I'm at that. It looks like I'm at that point now where where it's starting to burn off fat. Like it's it's uh, the 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 diet is going. Ooh, I need to eat something right. We'll just eat fat, and it's slowly slowly coming off my sides, which is good. That's the hard bit. What else is going on? Uh, how do I had my checkup at the uh, for my eyes, which is good because you know back in I, I had my bronchitis for six weeks, and then I ruptured my eye because of all the coughing, which still damaged, and I've still got a, a messed up eye. Have never been late with a single episode of Murder Mile. Never been late with a, not even an hour late with a single episode of Murder Mile. Even with even though I'm blind in my left eye, and i uh, uh, no depth perception and all that, I still still on time. Still on time. That's the efficiency of Murder Mile. Um, yep, yeah, went went to go and see my specialist. who's was very good. Uh, he said it's all going well. Got three more months of drugs to go in, which is uh, good uh, so i'm on the mend which is good hopefully i'll get um um some if not all vision back in my left that should be, be good and then which is really good he said uh and after that we'll uh we'll discuss options uh for the future of giving you a uh, much better vision and i paused and went what well, you mean an, a possible operation to fix my eye because that's never been discussed before because there is an operation but you can only have it if you're young and i'm not young anymore so I, I was always discounted as something i could never do and he went he looked at me and he went uh yeah let's just get this sorted first i was like oh is very exciting so there could be a chance of um rather because i've never had good vision i've never been able to see much at all um so it's great that there is a possibility now so that's that's, that's the reason to be with uh, one of the the, the best uh, eye hospitals in the country so there we go <sighs> uh all good um thank you to patreon supporters i'm going to thank ashley k mark the bark and stan bellington so uh thank you ashley thank Ma- thank you mark and thank you stan i hope you're in- enjoying all the goodies all the exclusive goodies that i don't share anywhere else um and uh I've got to get back to doing the, the competitions every month. I think I forgot this month. Uh, just been a lot on, a lot on, a lot, lot of stuff to do. Um, tea is brewing, so let's do some quiz questions. Don't forget, if you're new to Extra Mile, this is the unscripted, unedited bit. Uh, I'll just do some quiz questions, uh, have some chat, and then we go into some extra stuff, although we should do, but um, it's probably not going to happen. I'll explain why in a bit. So let's do the quiz questions. So question number one here's a hard one uh uh, uh, how high and low were the temperatures on the day that the legs were found so what was the highest temperature that day what was the lowest temperature that day there you go nice difficult oh burpees nice difficult one to start with another difficult one uh question number two how many carriages did the twickenham to waterloo train have don't forget i haven't edited this episode yet so these questions might not appear in the episode uh, question number three what time did the train arrive at Waterloo station question number four what platform did the train pull into uh, question number five what was the name of the cleaner who found the legs question number six what was the name of the lost property supervisor tease up Oh, Hang on. oh, oh! The bloody hell! The little label from the teabag has gone in as well. I have to fish that out in a bit. Although I'm off to the coffee shop in a bit to go and have a oh, my decaf soy latte. Hopefully, wait. I don't know why this coffee shop was full of kids yesterday. Full of little bastards. And I checked, and it's not half term, but the streets were absolutely full of the little bastards. The 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 LBs were everywhere on their bikes, uh, running around, making noise. Little bastards everywhere, really annoying. So uh, yeah, oh, should be. there should be like we should have like a national No Children Day, or, or make it a week, or maybe a month. Or we'll just or we'll just ban children. That'd be so, oh, so lovely. Um, question number seven. What two newspapers were the legs wrapped in? Question question number eight. uh, What is the arrest of bone growth in teens known as on x-rays? Question number nine. What was the name of the photographic and x-ray expert? And question number ten. Police used the help of two sculptors from where? to make casts of the feet so there you go there you go folks um and normally in this point in the show normally uh, i would go through all the extra stuff so it's all stuff that didn't make it into the episode and normally what happens is i is i i create like a um a bi- like a biography for myself like all the details i need to know about the case and it's normally like 10 15 pages long sometimes it's a lot longer and i put it there uh, and then i copy and paste it at the bottom and then as i start writing it i i i can i can start erasing bits that i don't need out of the biography and i can kind of write it as i'm looking at the biography which makes sense and then at the bottom when i do extra mile is a, a backup copy of that i forgot to do that so uh, i got to the end and my backup copy doesn't exist of all the kind of facts that i was going to use uh so that's not there so um i have no idea what to say let's let's just go through let's go through what we've got um or or let's just have a, a think about it this case is kind of an interesting one isn't it i kind of stumbled across this um when i was looking for i can't remember why i think i was i think i was searching for um more bodies that were found in train stations or body parts and things like that. that could have been it when i was searching for body parts as you do um and it just kind of it, there wasn't much mentioned about it uh i found uh, a file in the national archives which was kind of uh, interesting it, it wasn't very thorough but there was enough in there so this was one of those cases where i had the inquest file on it i had some of the police records but also i kind of had to rely on the um the press as well because the press did report some of it but not particularly well um the the one part that i was going to put into the extra mile was the fact that someone someone um outside hounslow on the train line their house backs onto the train line and in and around the same time they found a uh, brown paper parcel tied with string inside of which contained underwear uh they didn't say whether it was soiled underwear or clean underwear but it was men definitely men's underwear um unfortunately um they picked it up and they thought oh that's disgusting and they threw it into the bin and then a couple of days later they found they saw a newspaper article about the um uh, about the uh the vest the body and the vest and then they went oh that could have been useful but by that point they'd only thrown it in the bin it didn't exist anymore um now this is also the problem as well we as we know with people when they get in touch they could be really useful and be like oh i definitely saw this and this definitely happened or you know that we also have the pricks out there who are desperate for kind of attention and they will say anything in the world just to get attention or there are people who see things and they make connections to things in their life so it may not be true it's just like that you know um they may have seen like uh a, a red car let's say for example they saw a red car don't go on the road and the newspaper said it was a green car suddenly in their mind they see a green car not a red card you know people do that our, our memories aren't particularly good so that did did happen there um who was this person i think that's kind of an odd thing, isn't it? um who was the person? Where did they come from? what were they about? um I think that is probably the nearest that we'll probably get in um this story to connecting them was the fact that there's uh that part of West London around the time there was a lot of kind of uh, construction going on um a lot of laborers working many of them working not on contracts, many of them working cash in hand. Uh, many of them just kind of turning up out the blue um saying have you got any work going and kind of working on a day-to-day a weekly basis so a lot of people coming in and out who um it was unknown who they were hence the police kind of here referred to them as uh as the flotsam and jetsam of ireland and wales um if you think about it i guess with um the fact that he was very pale skinned the fact that his hair was referred to as fair and i think we would refer to fair hair as kind of a light mousy brownish or or lighter but also you know potentially blonde potentially redhead as well so could be could be could be someone from ireland uh, could be an outside worker as they mentioned because he had kind of he was very heavily freckled but it was clear he had um pale skin and as as someone myself who um is scots irish descent um whenever whenever i get a bit of a tan it's not really a tan it's just kind of a collection of uh freckles joined together so uh yeah uh so it could be could be someone from uh up there could could have been an outdoor worker the the feet are kind of interesting uh A lot of press really picked up on this, and they were like, "Oh, maybe it is a drag artist." You know, a uh, uh, a five foot ten inch, well built man as a drag artist, and that's why the feet are kind of uh, scrunched up to make them smaller. Um, you you kind of see that with uh, geisha girls, as well uh, well, do you know in uh, China where they uh, bind the feet to make the feet even smaller, so, smaller. It's not even a word to make them uh, kind of more. De- Sorry, I'm scratching. I shouldn't be doing. I'm going to put on my um, mosquito repellent. I've got a scratch on my hand. I'm going to try not to scratch it. I'm just putting my anti-mosquito shite on it. Um, it's called off. It's called off with an exclamation mark. Off. It should really be called fuck off mosquito. Um so yeah, the, the, this person—they—they uh, they really picked up on the idea, the press of uh, that it could be a man in drag, that kind of thing. I don't think it is. I think, I think when you when you go through the history of kind of looking at things like this, especially people who are poor, you tend to get you—you don't—you don't really go out buying new clothes. You tend to get hand-me-downs from your family, and you know they might not be in good condition and they might not particularly fit well. So it's likely they said that he'd been wearing um shoes or boots that hadn't fit him for a very long time hence his the front of his toes were quite crunched over so um uh, the boots were too small for him but also the width of his foot had been kind of compressed as well so it's likely that he was wearing uh, smaller shoes because he was a manual worker although you never know he could have been a um could have been a drag act uh, wh- why were the um uh, why was his legs shaved we don't know we don't know i mean that's an odd question maybe it was something he did maybe maybe they weren't shaved maybe he was uh working with tar given the fact that he was a road worker and having you know i've worked with bitumen and things like that before and uh it really sticks to the skin it really grabs the hairs and when you try and remove it it rips the hairs out so maybe that's it maybe they're not shaved maybe it was um him working with tar they did say that the feet were quite dirty as well um we only know that the hair is of a specific color because i think the the hair on the the higher parts of the legs uh, were the fair haired bits the bits that were lower down were um they say shaved, but we're not too sure Uh, as for the wig is it a wig um they said there were three hairs that were four inches long dark um and most likely women's hair now they say women's hair but I think that's just because they're saying the hair is kind of over four inches long but this is kind of an era where kind of men wouldn't have long hair you know this really didn't happen until kind of you know 50s and 60s and 70s especially men would all have quite short hair so it was rare for a man to have four inch long hair but didn't didn't so it could it could be anyone's. We don't know anything about that. We don't know where the hair is now. Um, we know that the body parts were stored in the Metropolitan Police uh, Laboratory for a while. But it's likely that they, they would have either been destroyed or they may have given them a burial. Uh, but we obviously the head was never found, even though uh one of the uh, one of the newspapers, one of the tabloids was like, "I got really excited, I was piecing together all my Bible and going through everything, and they went, Oh gee you know, a head has been found in Ealing and I went oh, it's brilliant that's very exciting it wasn't mentioned in the police reports, but it was in the press and then I started digging around digging around in all of the other news reports, and it was only one newspaper once that briefly mentioned that a head had been found, and so therefore. It has to be deduced that it was just another tabloid making up shit to draw people's attention in because that's what the tabloid newspapers do. If you've seen it, there's an in- interesting uh, documentary that was on uh, about a year ago about uh, the, the death of Princess Diana. And it was, it was interesting. It dug into some facts that were known and some that weren't known and things like that. But the most interesting fact was they sat down with a journalist who... Uh, had covered all of this and had covered all of the life of princess diana and uh and i think yeah i can't remember which shit newspaper it was it was either daily mail or news of the world i think he may have been a journalist who worked for both and they showed him the articles he'd written back then and it's it's fascinating to watch because his face he literally looks at them and you can see all the blood drain out of his face and he just goes totally pale and he looks at it and he goes oh god this is just horrible and he goes okay look um back then we would write any old shit all we wanted was people buying newspapers we would buy we would write whatever shit was out there it didn't matter whether it was lies it didn't matter whether it was half-truths it didn't matter whether we'd entirely made it up we just did it because we knew we had to put her on the front page and we'd invent any old shit and he said it's just it's crap and it's horrible but it's what we did and it's like oh so if it, it, it's amazing if only now we could have like uh, whether ai software can do this could go back through the old newspapers and verify everything and just go right this is shit this is lies this is bollocks and then just if you think about it the newspapers that the articles that he would have written have been used in books and people have used those books as fact so it's all it takes is for one person desperate for attention to create some shit some absolute lies and then it becomes facts because as they say if you say it enough times it becomes fact so uh i can't remember what the documentary was called but it was i thought that bit was quite interesting uh well so, oh um this part so the the um where the torso was found is Probably about two hundred yards from where uh Alice Gross was found, so if you go back to uh, uh the multi part episode I did called uh the yet was it called the Yellow ribbons of hanwell um it's there it's the same part so she would have as she was running up to the lock uh, in the last moments of her life, probably around the time that she may have bumped into um uh her killer um it was literally around that same point as well so uh yeah. Are all are all kind of uh, irving on the back of the hanwell asylum as well um the brown paper that the, there are other kind of things that were seen on the paper as well let's have a, a look um i'm just going through I, I haven't got my notes but i'm just going through there were other things written on there well as well so um in handwriting two different pe- got hiccups now um in two different pieces of handwriting so one that's in kind of a nice scrawl was written the words this week and then in capitals which is entirely different handwriting is written the word please so the police were never able to determine what that was um let's see what else we've got the problem is also this is one of those files where um I had that moment where I was going through the archives doing everything and popping everything on the hard drive and then suddenly one of my hard drives went and I lost a lot of data. The uh, protector label that was found on the, uh, the vest. So I, I was able to get a copy of that. I can't even see what it is. It's, it's, it's a picture of a man in a wig. So like a 17th century man in a wig and behind him looks like a big old anchor which is held together by a thread... Uh, and underneath so that's all black and in red underneath it says uh protector what does that say under unbreakable i think it says it's all it's all in reverse at the moment which is not very good uh i don't really know what else to say this is the problem when i haven't got my notes in front of me there's not really a lot to say um uh, the um station bit at the end I mean, if you think about it, uh, it's the same day. See, this is the thing again. This statement by Harold Hillier and his uh, his colleague, Thomas Shea, at Hounslow Station. So Harold Hillier was an attendant working at w Smith's. And he said that on Monday the 25th of February, which is the right day, the day the legs were found, at 1pm, which kind of marries up that uh, they could have picked up a train, uh hounslow station that they saw three men in the booking hall and one of them with a large brown parcel brown paper parcel he doesn't really describe the brown paper parcel but he said it's similar to the one described but obviously i haven't got the description here of how they described it Um, one of the men definitely caught the 106 train to waterloo Um, but this is not the train from Twickenham to waterloo this is the train that went through hounslow to waterloo and they're they're different lines so they're not connected so if they were the same men and the one man who got on the train late 20s medium build fair haired similar to the victim if he got on the train there and some of the body parts were thrown off the bridge see that's the thing it can't be thrown off the bridge on the Hanwell, on the uh, Hounslow route, because that's downstream. And unless he's got a really, really good wang, not wang as in wang, as if he's got a really good throw, and he can he can throw it like he could throw a couple of kilos of torso more than 300 uh, yards, which is impossible. I mean, it, it just wouldn't have happened, so the problem is that the the line above that is the piccadilly line but if you've been on the piccadilly line there's no there's no windows there's windows between the carriages but they're not windows outside so he couldn't have thrown it from the train so um police don't believe that uh the body that was dumped in the canal was dumped from a train from from the bridge they think it's more likely that someone came along here dumped it dumped it in the river um in the canal and it just kind of sat there the canal's so really slow and only kind of moves really when boats go through it so i think that's more likely uh why was the legs on the train i don't know that's one of the mysteries isn't it it doesn't make sense to bring the legs onto the train given the fact that this is a train that goes back and forth to the same location So, so the legs will probably go back to where they'd originated um did someone did someone arrive at waterloo station and then go through the barriers and then get onto a train and then dump the legs there and then d- depart it doesn't make sense because you'd have to buy another ticket you'd have to go through the turnstile you'd have to go through the ticket inspector who'd see you did someone arrive at waterloo station so not come in on the train via Hamslow or twickenham but did they come into waterloo station then get on the train dump the uh parcel under the seat and then move down the train we don't know it's 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 one of those really weird things where this could be anything so we don't know we just don't know um i think that's it because i haven't got my notes i don't really know what else to say uh what an idiot what an idiot Uh, although to be honest there wasn't a huge amount that I, i hadn't put into this episode so i don't know so let's do the quiz questions and let's see how well you did. Uh, what time is it? I really need a wee now. It's one o'clock. It's time for me to FRO down to the coffee shop. Good. You can hear an asshole in a helicopter going over. Question number one. How high or low, how high and low was the temperature on the day the legs were found? It was highs of three degrees and lows of minus seven. Question number two. How many carriages did the, uh, Question number two, how many carriages did the Twickenham to Waterloo train have? It was 26. Question number three, what time did the train arrive at Waterloo? 2.30. Question number four, what platform did the train pull into? It was platform 19. Platform number five, what was the name of the cleaner who found the legs? It was James Albert Eves. Question number six, what was the name of the lost property supervisor? That was John George Cooper. Question number seven, what two newspapers were the legs wrapped in? It was the Daily Express and the News of the World. Quality newspapers. Question number eight, what is the arrest of bone growth in teens known as on x-rays? they're called harris lines question number nine what was the name of the photographic and x-ray expert dr olaf block what a good name and question number 10 police used the help of two sculptors from where to make casts of the feet i'm not going to tell you no it's madam Swords. there we go madam Swords. oh i'm gonna go off to the coffee shop oh i can't wait i'm gonna i'm gonna make tonight i think i'm gonna make some chicken fajitas mm. i'm actually gonna have some meat is murder i'm gonna have some meat tonight or i might try some if there's some veggie good veggie versions i might see what there is maybe i might maybe i might risk trying tofu tonight never tried tofu just doesn't just doesn't appeal to me maybe i might maybe i just can't be asked. um and then i'm going to have some of my swedish glass ice cream which is very good they do a good raspberry one and it's good you don't because uh, it's vegan you don't get a headache with it and you don't get that horrible feeling of uh, fats in your mouth it's it, it tastes nice and you can eat a whole lot and it's it's not full of calories which is great so that's me done folks i hope you enjoyed that episode that was a different one for you uh, rather than usual so i hope you enjoyed that Uh, have yourself a good week folks stay safe be good lots of love and thank you for supporting the show catch you soon or maybe not i don't know maybe not maybe you will maybe you won't i don't know maybe maybe